Amen. Please remain standing. We're beginning a new sermon series this morning from the life of Joseph. That's in the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And we'll start in chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. Before we hear God's Word, let's pray together. Almighty and everlasting God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, You are the true light, and we ask that You, Holy Spirit, would enliven our minds, enlighten our souls now, and show us Jesus, the Savior, the Savior who was there present in Joseph's life and in our lives. Make Him beautiful and believable. This is our humble prayer, and we make it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Genesis 37, beginning at verse 1, this is God's holy, inspired, and therefore inerrant word. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because He was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, We were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the living God will stand forever and ever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Life is hard. Amen. Life will let you down if it hasn't already. You will find difficulties ahead in the new year that you weren't expecting. And when life gets hard, as it inevitably will... Here's the question that will arise consciously or unconsciously in your mind that you will ask and you will answer. Here it is. Can I trust God's providence when my life gets hard? When my experience doesn't match up with what God has promised, can I still trust Him? Is He still trustworthy? That's why we're studying the life of Joseph. Now, let me set the context for you really quickly. This is 
the last part of Genesis. And if you've got an English Bible, you see chapters and verses, those weren't there in the original. So Moses gives us an internal outline for this book. We translate it with four or five English words here. These are the generations of. That is one word in Hebrew, and it's mentioned ten times. These are the generations of. That's how the book of Genesis is ordered, starting in Genesis 2 and finishing here in Genesis 37, ten, these are the generations of statements. That's how the book is organized. This portion of Genesis occupies as much as the narrative about Abraham and Isaac showing us the importance that God places on the story he's going to tell us about the life of Joseph. And then, if we went back a couple of chapters, we'd read about Jacob and Esau, Joseph's father Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau were twins. They were born together. It's a dysfunctional family, to put it mildly. And when you read the Scriptures, this part of Genesis is one of those places where if you've ever doubted that God wrote the Bible, just read these stories. The Bible is never hesitant to make known the sins of its heroes. You you read the Quran, for example, Muhammad comes out smelling like a rose. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not so much. You're not going to walk into a Christian bookstore and find under the parenting section, How to Win at Parenting by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not going to be a title you see on the shelves. The Bible shows us their sins because God wants to show us that he's faithful to sinners. So here's what I want us to see from what I just read this morning. God uses a broken family to display his amazing grace in Jesus. He uses a broken family to display his amazing grace in Jesus. And we'll look at these 11 verses under three headings. Joseph, Joseph's brothers, and Joseph's Jesus. First of all, Joseph, who we're introduced to. The text tells us that he was 17 years old. Now, most of us have, have, are in the years of raising teenagers or have raised teenagers, or maybe you've got young kids. They're going to be teenagers someday, Lord willing. I remember when I was graduating from high school about finishing up my senior year and made some snide remark to my mama, and she said to me, you know, Gabriel, uh, you probably ought to write a book right now while you still know everything. And 17, 18 years old, that's what you do. Here's Joseph, 17, and we need to go back just a little bit further in the Genesis narrative to understand why he's set up for failure. Okay, so if you went back to Genesis 33, this is where Jacob and Esau are getting ready to meet after Jacob had stolen Esau's birthright years earlier. So what's going to happen is he sends this uh, retinue, he sends this caravan to meet Esau to give him gifts because he's heard word that Esau's coming to meet him with 400 men, which Jacob takes to mean Esau's still really mad at me and he's going to kill me and my family. And there's an incidental little detail there that makes all the difference in chap- chapter 33. He, it tells us there that Jacob split up his family. He took his other sons with his wife Leah, who he didn't like so much, and put them at the front of this caravan. He took Rachel and Joseph and put them at the back. Why did he do that? Because what he was saying is, if Esau has come to kill me, Leah, you and your sons are expendable. I'm going to protect the ones I love the most and put them in the back. Now, you don't think the older brothers remember that? These are real people, friends. 
You don't think that during some of the meals around the table in Jacob's home, he said, you remember that time, Dad, when you said you loved us, but you put us up front knowing that we would be human shields if Esau really was coming in vengeance? So Joseph's already set up to fail. And then we read that he's something of a tattletale. He brings an evil report. This Hebrew word's only used in two other places, Numbers and Proverbs. It can be translated as slanderous, but more, more likely than not, evil. It's kind of ambiguous on purpose. He's going out there watching his brother's work and coming back saying, yeah, Dad, they're just not exactly doing what they should do. Now, had Jacob been a good parent, he would have said, boy, get back out in the fields and work. But he didn't do that. He doubles down. He gives him, as we translate in so many of our English versions, a coat of many colors. And being in Tennessee, I know most of our minds are going right to the Dolly Parton song that's going through our heads. It's a great song, but that's not what it's about. Uh, the, the better translation, it's an interesting word here in the original. It's only used one other time, 2 Samuel thirteen eighteen, where it's better translated as a royal robe. So here's what this means when Jacob gives this to Joseph. You're the chosen one. You're the one who's going to get everything when I die. You're the favored son of my old age. Then he sends him back out to the field. This guy is young. He's cocky, he's rich, and he knows it. Just the kind of person you want to be around, right? Sends him back out in the field to his brothers, and then on top of it all, Joseph comes to his brothers and says, as he's been, as it were, kicking up his feet in the AC all day while his brothers are grinding it out in the field, he says, hey boys, God spoke to me. And, and you can see just no tact. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's, he's speaking about what God has actually shown him. But it's almost like, I'm young, I'm wealthy, and oh, by the way, God talks to me too. And so unsurprisingly, we'll see in a moment, his brothers react. Now at the outset, just think about this. These are the kind of people God uses. The people who blow it, the people who don't get it, the people who struggle like Joseph did with pride and arrogance. And it's important that we understand this as we start this series because Joseph's life is fascinating, how God deals with him. And it won't make any sense unless we understand the heights from which he started. The depths to which he falls will make no sense unless we understand that. Now, second place here, we see Joseph's brothers. Now, after they hear about God coming to him in his dreams, what's their first response? You've got to be kidding me. We're not going to bow down to you. And the text says they couldn't even speak peacefully to him. That's that wonderful Hebrew word shalom. It means peace, wholeness. It's a, still to this day a traditional greeting between Jewish people. They say shalom to each other. So it was in this day. And his brothers couldn't even say that to him. And think about this. They were raised in a home where they had heard about God visiting people. They knew the stories from their father, their grandfather Isaac, their great-grandfather Abraham. They knew that God spoke. They knew the covenant promises. They had witnessed circumcisions. They knew that there was this great God who had met their ancestors. And yet, what's their first response? Jealousy. Ingratitude. Reminding us here, friends, that you can go to church, you can be raised in a Christian home, you can be baptized, you can know all about the promises of God, and they can never penetrate your hearts. 
And that's a warning here, especially. We'll come back to this at the end. Let me just say to the covenant children here, if you've been baptized and you're not a communing member of this church, you haven't made a profession of faith, you might find yourself in the situation like Joseph's brothers. Lots of good teaching. Lots of hearing about God. But you haven't even come to Christ yet. Can I ask you a question? Why not? Why would you delay in coming to this great and mighty and wonderful and loving Savior? That was this brother, his brother's problem. In fact, they exemplify Galatians 5.20. What does Paul say? The works of the flesh are evident. Jealousy, enmity, fits of anger. They show that they've not yet been converted. So you've got a spoiled brat, unconverted brothers, and they've all been around the same kind of teaching. And here's the, here's the good news here, friends. God loves lost sons. We're going to see that by the end of this story. He comes after lost sons. What's astonishing here is that God had every right to get, give up on the brothers, and it's going to get worse with the brothers. And he still does not give up on them. He still has grace for the lost son and the lost brothers. So here's the family we meet. Dysfunctional. And where, where did the brothers learn about this from? Where did Joseph learn about this from? Their father. After all, what happened with Jacob and Esau? He stole Esau's birthright. But what did Isaac do? He showed favoritism to Jacob. And so Jacob is just repeating the same errors he saw growing up. And the brothers are seeing the same thing. This is how it works in our family. Isn't that a timely reminder, especially coming off the holidays? And somebody said to me recently, heartbreakingly, you know, my favorite day of the year, Gabe, is January 1st because the holidays are over and I don't have to be around family. I think that's a lot of people's testimony today, friends. A lot of brokenness in families. A lot of sins repeated generation after generation. That's why First Peter tells us about this, that we have not inherited this futile way that our forefathers taught us, but we've learned something different in the gospel. They had not learned it yet. Jacob hasn't learned it. Joseph hasn't learned it. His brothers haven't learned it. And that's going to have massive consequences, not just for their family, but for world history, as we'll see. Now, the last thing we see here that might not be so obvious is Joseph's Jesus. Where do we see Jesus here? How do we know that we're meant to not just read this as a story, an interesting life story about Joseph and his brothers? Because if you went over to Luke 24, in the greatest Bible study ever held right after Jesus' resurrection, what does Luke tell us? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all these places. Okay? So we need to understand this original audience to whom this was written to, and then we need to say that Jesus, by his own testimony, tells us we ought to see him in this story. Now think again about the original audience to whom this was written. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. When did he write them? Probably during the 40 years of the wilderness wandering after the Exodus. So the first people to hear this story were the Israelites. And God is saying to them through Moses, here's your family lineage. I want you to take courage and have faith, but I also want to warn you about what can happen when you don't. 
This is your people, Israel. This is who you came from. And it's the same thing for us. We're warned here as well as simultaneously we're encouraged. Jesus says by his own testimony, he's in this story. How? How do we see Jesus here? Well, as we go on through the life of Joseph, God raises him up to save not just his family, but the entire nation of Israel, just like Jesus would do. But here's the thing that we're going to see as we study. It will be costly for everybody involved. It's going to cost Joseph his pride and his arrogance. It's going to cost the brothers their jealousy. It's going to cost Jacob what he thought he knew about how to live for God. It's going to cost Joseph a favored position in Pharaoh's household. And it points us to the fact that God's purposes are greater, more amazing than we ever imagined. It starts out just a story about a spoiled young brat with some brothers who don't like him, and it ends up showing us the hope of the gospel for people like you and me. So how do we see Jesus here in some specific ways in this opening text? Well, look at the brother's response when Joseph said, hey, God's visited me. Are you going to rule over us? Don't we hear that same echo in the gospels? When the Jews say to Jesus, who made you a king and a prince over us? We don't have to listen to you. Or what did the Gospel of John tell us? He came to his own and his own received him not. The nation of Israel that should have rejoiced in their Savior being sent to him rejected him. And the sun and the moon and the eleven sheaves bowing down to him showing that Israel and his wife and all the tribes bowing down to the favored son. That's exactly who Jesus ends up being for us. And you see, He's the favored son not in the wrong way. Not because God the Father picked favorites and sinned. It's impossible for God to do that. Instead, He's always been the favored son. He is the one who's chief among 10,000 and altogether lovely. He's the rose of Sharon in the Father's eyes. He's the one upon whom God pronounced that mighty benediction, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And He sends this beloved Son to be rejected by the very people who should have received Him. And it still happens today, doesn't it, friends? You see, why would we reject this kind of a Savior? I had somebody say this to me this week, you know, we believe in being spiritual, not religious, in this organization. You know what that means translated? You can talk about anything you want, spirituality-wise, Eastern mysticism, you know, Buddhism, whatever. Anything that you know, kind of gives all the smells and bells and all the feels of spirituality. But the minute you say Jesus is the only way, the minute you say that you're a lost sinner who's going to go to hell if you don't believe in Jesus, then people stop being religious real quickly and spiritual and all that stuff, and it disappears. And that's because, again, today we still reject the one we should accept. We are just like Joseph's brothers. So Jesus is here, and Joseph will learn about that. Joseph learned to look ahead and see by faith. How do we know that? Because Hebrews 11.22 says, By faith at the end of his life, Joseph, foreseeing the resurrection, said to Israel, Take my bones with you out of Egypt. 
He learned the lesson. He hasn't learned it yet. Now, what does this mean for us? I want to come back to a couple things as we finish up here this morning. The first thing I want to talk about is the danger of a Christian home. The danger of a Christian home. We had a baptism in the early service. And we take vows as a congregation every time a child's baptized. Baptism corresponds roughly to circumcision in the Old Testament. That's why we baptize our children here. And what that means is we're looking by faith to God to fulfill His promises for our children just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob should have done. Just like we affirm we're going to do. But what do we see so often in the church? Don't just look outside. Let's look at our own house first. In the church, we see kids walking away at an alarming rate. We see covenant children who stray and wander and and it doesn't seem like they even know the Lord. And so what we need to be challenged by this text this morning, especially if you're a covenant baptized child here this morning who has yet to profess faith in Jesus is, are you going to end up like Joseph's brothers? Unconverted, without hope, without God, in the world You see, here's the the problem that we need to face. When we baptize a baby and we're all feeling the good feels, remember that the sign of baptism, Peter tells us, is not just a sign of blessing. It's also a sign of cursing. So for those who are baptized and believe in Jesus, it's a sign of blessing. If you've been baptized and you haven't come to Christ, then Peter says, 1 Peter 3.16-18, that you've become like one of those who's trapped in the flood. It becomes a sign of cursing for you. Don't let it be a sign of cursing for you. Come to Christ today. And that that leads us to another problem that we see here. The failure of leadership in the home. Started with Abraham, went through to Isaac, comes to Jacob. What's one of the major epidemics we don't talk about in America today? Far more dangerous than anything like COVID-19. It's an epidemic of spineless men. Men are charged with leading the home. Now, I know that's almost verboten to say today. People will immediately put up their hands and say, well, you're saying like men should be these domineering, you know, uh, male headship patriarchs in the home? No, of course not. Has this been abused? Of course it has. That's all beside the point, my friends. What does the Bible say? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church does to Christ. Men set up as leaders in their home, but what do we have today? Most of the time in the church especially, we have little boys running around that look like men. Little boys who'd prefer to be in the basement winning at video games in mythical worlds than actually doing something in reality. And that's why you see the sad state of affairs so often in the church. Spineless men abdicating the leadership God has given them in their homes and going after idols. And so when God sets up a man to lead in his home, as one author put it, when you become a leader, according to Paul, you get to wear the crown of thorns. You get to become one who practices self-denial. And friends, if you're a husband here this morning, you will give an account. I will give an account for how I led my home, my wife, and my children. If that doesn't scare you, I don't know what will. And one of the things God calls us to is to lead and to serve our wives and our children by leading. 
to serve our communities by leading, to serve our churches by leading. One of the breakdowns in this family was the fact that Jacob never led. He was content to abdicate that role. He never taught his sons. He repeated the errors of the past, and it cost him everything. Man, we don't want to be like Jacob. And so one of the ways we're going to wear that crown of thorns in our homes, let's ask ourselves this, brothers. Let's ask some hard questions. One, are we leading? Are we teaching our kids, unlike Jacob, what it means to follow Jesus? Are we spending time with our children and our wives in the Word, praying with them, praying for them, interceding for them? Are we loving them well? Are we repenting to our wives? Hey, Honey, forgive me, I sinned against you by the way I spoke. Or to our children, nothing more humbling than to have to tell your little child, I messed up, I'm really sorry, forgive me. And let's ask a question as well, wives, are you submitting to your husbands? Are you letting them lead? If you want little toddlers running around your home besides the ones you're raising, namely the one you're married to, then abdicate his role of leadership. It'll turn him into a toddler quick as you can imagine. If you want a man to lead, then Paul gives us the clearest instructions. And we can unpack this more in a later time. Being a submissive wife does not mean being dour and being trampled over. We've missed the point if we think being submissive means being a doormat. What it does mean is that God has established roles in the home. And one of the biggest crises we face today, just like Jacob faced, is when we abdicate those roles, things start to fall apart. And so one of the things we ought to pray for is, Lord, don't let us be spineless men. Let's make that our prayer this year, brothers. Let us lead. Let us serve by leading our homes. And let us ask the Lord to make us the kind of men worth following. And let's pray for our children. We take vows as a congregation to assist parents in raising their kids. Will we be there when their kids go astray? Does this church a place where you feel safe enough to talk to people about where your kids have gone astray and you'll find somebody who won't judge you but will say, let me pray for you, brother. Let me pray for you, sister, because I know it's hard raising kids. And we don't know what God's going to do, do we? If you have a child who's wandered, don't give up. Keep praying and enlist others to pray with you and for you, for your kids. One of the most painful things, one of the things that scares me the most is, what happens if my kid walks away? And if we're the kind of place that God is calling us to be, it'll be a safe place if our children do stray, and it'll be a safe place for them to be called home, called back. That's the last thing this morning that this text teaches us. Here's the temptation when we read a story like this. It's to identify more with Joseph than with his brothers. Okay? That's how most of us read this and go, isn't it cool how God saw Joseph through all these difficulties? Yes and amen. It's great. That's what we're going to learn. Okay? But here's the flip side of it, and here's what we can't miss at the outset. We're not supposed to see ourselves in Joseph right now. We're the brothers. We're the ones who are lost. We're the ones who have the default setting of Joseph's siblings. 
We need the one who's greater than Joseph. That's how we see Jesus here as well. Our default setting, yours, mine, is to go exactly the opposite of what we're supposed to be doing. It's to not have faith in God. It's to not believe His promises. We're just like His brothers. And here's the good news. God loves lost brothers. That's why Jesus told us the parable of the prodigal son. He loves lost brothers when they're lost in different ways. He loves you when you stray. He loves to call us home. And if nothing else, when you read this story and see all the dysfunction, look at your own life and you see so many problems, so many tragedies even, and you wonder, can I trust God's providence? He says, just look at what I did with Joseph's family. I can do that again in your life. I will never cease to seek and save those whom I love. So don't give up. If you know you're lost this morning, guess what? Jesus stands with open arms. If you've never come to Him before, He still stands with open arms. If you've blown it in your family, it's not too late to start and say, God, I'm giving you myself afresh this morning. I want to see you do awesome things in my life, in my family. I want to see you grow my faith. And I understand, God, that when I ask you to grow my faith, you might take me through something like what you took Joseph through. It costs everybody when we come and follow Jesus. On my way in this morning, I was listening to one of my favorite songs by a a Christian songwriter named Jeff Moore. Uh, It's called The Next Thing. And I think if Joseph were here with us today, I think he would say that that's what I'm talking about. that's, That's exactly what I would be singing. I know I'd be the richest man. If I could see around the bend, I'd have myself one heck of a plan, but I don't. So do I take a left or take a right, pack up my gloves or stay and fight, leave at dawn or in the middle of the night? I don't know. Because the next thing might be easy. The next thing might be hard. Might take you a thousand miles or keep you where you are. I used to think the wisest man knew what this life would bring, but now I see the wisdom in trusting God and doing the next thing. That's the lesson Joseph would learn. Trust God. Do the next thing. That's the lesson all of us will have to learn. We're all the brothers in this story. We all need the greater Joseph to save us. We all need to see that if we could see around the bend, we'd have one heck of a plan, but we don't. All we have is Jesus. And that's all we're going to need no matter how bad or hard life gets. Let's pray. Lord, you love to teach us through stories, and we're so grateful to have a father who's a storyteller. Thank you for true stories about real people in space-time history who you helped. Help us by the story of the life of Joseph. Keep us from jealousy, Lord. Keep us close to the cross. We pray for any here who know not you, that you would open their eyes to the beauty of Jesus, the Son who was despised, so that we could all be accepted as adopted sons and daughters. We pray in his mighty name. Amen.
Please stand.